Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment Revealing the Hidden. In this program, each Saturday we meet together and we explore volumes 2 through 13 of this book series. We're now in volume 7. We're actually finishing up the last 14 chapters in volume 7. So I'd like to welcome you to our class and invite you to join in to learn the teachings of the Buddha. Whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been with us in the past, we'll actually be displaying the chapters from that book and a student will be reading the chapters. And then after someone reads the chapter, I will then share teachings based on what covered in that chapter by the Buddha using his words then I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have related to that specific chapter. For those of you guys that have been part of the program for a while, you might have read those chapters already and coming to class with questions. But if you haven't read those chapters, it's okay because we're going to be reading them in class today. And then if you'd like to join for future classes, you can actually read the chapters as we move along in the program. So you can download these books from buddhadailywisdom.com. There's a button for free books and you'll see all the books there and you can download them and read the chapters ahead of time. Next week, we're going to be in volume eight, which is a brand new book that we're starting. It's called The Foremost Householders. This is a book with collection of teachings that are all based on household practitioners that household practitioners would need. And we're going to be exploring chapters one through 10 in our class next week. Typically, at the beginning of class, we will do a meditation in order to prepare the mind for learning so that we can then focus on the teachings and retain the teachings for a longer period of time. And then that way you can apply them in your daily life and actually experience the results of the Buddhist teachings. But I mentioned last week in class that we're not going to be doing meditation today because we have more chapters than normal to cover. We're finishing out this book. We have 14 chapters where normally we just do 10. So we're not going to actually do meditation today. Although I mentioned to students last week that if you would like to meditate before class, that would be wise. And then you're kind of prepared for the class. But let's just go ahead and move right into the actual chapters which we're starting with chapter 21 today. And I'm going to turn things over to the moderators for anybody who is going to be reading and be able to ask any questions that are coming in. As we progress in class, if you have any questions, you can just put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be able to ask those questions. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'll just turn things over to all of you guys and we'll progress in our class from here. 
I'm not sure. Let's go to Miranda to uh, to read the first chapter. <clears throat> Breathing mindfulness meditation, well established, annoying thoughts and impulses don't exist. Remain focused, monks, on foulness in the body. Have mindfulness of in and out breathing well established in front of you. Remain focused on the inconsistency of all untruths. For one who remains focused on the foulness of the body, the obsession with passion for the property of beauty is abandoned. For one who has mindfulness of in and out breathing, well established in front of oneself, annoying thoughts and impulses don't exist. For one who remains focused on the inconsistency of all untruths, ignorance, unknowing of true reality, is abandoned, clear wisdom arises. Focusing on foulness in the body, mindful of in and out breathing, seeing the stilling of all untruths, dedicated always, he is a monk who is seen clearly. From that he is there liberated, a master of direct knowledge, experience, at peace, he is a wise one gone beyond bondage. All right. Thank you, Miranda. This is uh, chapter 21 of this book, volume seven, titled Breathing Mindfulness Meditation. So this is a book with collection of teachings extracted from the Pali Canon that are specifically about breathing mindfulness meditation. Remember, the Pali Canon is 45 large volumes. So a team of people have extracted these chapters into this book that are the most important teachings related to breathing mindfulness meditation that the Buddha taught. And in this first part here and throughout this chapter, we see the Buddha talking about meditating on the foulness of the body or the unattractiveness of the body. This is the way to eliminate any kind of sexual cravings. If you have challenges with sexual cravings and you would like to bring that down and kind of bring it down a bit more, or if you're looking to actually eliminate central desire, that fetter, that taint, the pollution of mind, of central desire. And one of the strongest central desires we have is an interest and desire and craving and yearning and longing for sexual intercourse. The way to eliminate that is to be able to see true reality and observe the body as it truly is and understand the un unattractiveness of the body. Now, depending on where you are in your practice, you may actually feel that the body is attractive and you may still have that and you're not quite ready to actually eliminate any kind of sexual cravings right now. And that's completely fine. Everybody progresses on this path at their own pace. It's their own independent journey. And one of the ways to help extinguish a craving in some cases is to actually fulfill it. And the more that you kind of fulfill that craving, maybe in your 20s or your 30s, or as you get older, you may get to a point where you've decided to let that go. And it, you're not interested in the sexual intercourse any longer. And you're more interested in this peaceful mind and being liberated from this desire and this craving, this yearning for sexual contact. And when you're ready to do that, there's a meditation that you can do in order to observe this unattractiveness of the body as part of your meditation practice. Not everybody is necessarily going to need that, but if you would like to do it, it's something that is shared in the Buddhist teachings, and I can help you learn how to do that. The other part that he's talking about here in this first paragraph is he's talking about remaining focused on the inconsistency of all untruths. 
it's really important as we go through our life to always speak the truth. This is so, so, so important because we establish this ability to have what the Thais call barami or the one who people listen to. And if we speak untruths, even you know, just slight untruths, or maybe we didn't look at something very closely and we kind of mentioned something kind of off the cuff and maybe we're in a bit of a hurry, this can actually create situations where we're talking to people and we're in conversations, but we haven't fully understood what it is that we're actually sharing. So by exploring and ensuring that we're always speaking the truth, we have this ease in life. We have this peacefulness where we don't have to figure out what we said to one person or another. We aren't intentionally telling lies, but we're also not mistakenly telling lies either. We're always looking to ensure that what we share is the truth. And the way that you get to the truth is through independent verification and ensuring that what you're looking at and what you're understanding is actually the truth. And then be sure that as you speak, you share that as you need to. And then in their situations where you don't know the truth or you don't know the information, it's really helpful to just say, I don't know. This is really good for the ego and eliminating any conceit that's in the mind, being willing and able to admit that I don't know. This is really helpful for the mind. And the Buddha goes through and explains this a little bit further in each one of these sentences. This entire excerpt here is really all about developing the unattractiveness of the body and developing the mind to eliminate ignorance in order to be able to see the truth. And the reason why we have craving and desire for the human body, for sexual contact, is because we don't see the body as it truly is. We see the hair and the clothing and the jewelry and we put these scents in terms of colognes and perfumes. We might use makeup. We might use other things. We don't see underneath of this skin what the body really looks like. And this is what creates attractiveness in the mind where we are interested in having sex or sexual contact with this body. And if we actually see the body as it truly is, that's where you can diminish and ultimately eliminate any sensual desire or craving for sexual contact. And as you do, eliminating this ignorance, eliminating this attractiveness of the body, you know, thinking that this is something that should be desired, then this last paragraph that the Buddha shares here, he talks about, you know, once the mind is liberated, that this person is a master of direct knowledge. This is how you actually get to the truth and you eliminate or still all untruths is that you're able to independently verify aspects of this life. So as you go through this process of moving from the unenlightened mind to the enlightened mind to eliminate discontentedness, you get to be a real master at learning teachings, reflecting on those, and then practicing them to see the truth. And by the time you get to enlightenment, you've solved the biggest problem that you've ever encountered here in this earth, which is this discontent mind. And a practitioner who diligently works towards eliminating discontentedness and attain enlightenment goes through a multi-year journey of learning, reflecting, and practicing to discover the truth. And not only do you learn this as part of the Buddhist teachings, 
or I should say, you learn this as part of the Buddhist teachings, and then not only do you apply this to the Buddhist teachings and this problem that you have with discontentedness in the unenlightened mind, but you then start applying the same methodology, this same practice to all parts of your life. Whether you're an engineer or you're a teacher or any aspect of life that you're in, maybe you're looking to buy a house or you're looking to buy a car, you learn you reflect and you practice and you figure out, you know, is this car truly worth $5,000? This used car that I'm about to purchase, let me investigate this. Let me learn about this car. Let me get some information on this. Let me reflect on this. Let me think about it. Let me take my time in making a decision. And now let me maybe ask some questions. Let me look at a certain report. Let me take it to a mechanic, different things like this. And you learn how to apply this same approach that you did to solve the problem of the discontent mind. You learn how to do that same thing with other parts of your life. Purchasing a car, maybe purchasing a house. Maybe there's a certain problem with the car. There's a certain problem with the house. You look for the truth. Maybe you have a child that goes to school and comes home and tells you something that happened at school and you weren't there. You didn't actually see it with your own eyes. So rather than get angry and frustrated about that, maybe you make a phone call. You ask the teacher or you talk with some other students at the school and try to understand what happened here. And this is a very good way of progressing in life is what the Buddha is sharing here is becoming this expert at attaining direct knowledge or experience. And that's what leads to peace and then elimination of discontentedness. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? No question at this time, teacher. All right. So let's move into chapter 22. Breathing mindfulness meditation, the Tathagata Dueling. Monks, if wanderers of other communities ask you in what dwelling, friends, did the perfectly enlightened one generally dwell during the rain's retreat? Being asked thus, you should answer those wanderers thus, during the rain's residing residence, friends, the perfectly enlightened one generally resided in the concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation. Here, monks, mindful I breathe in, mindful I breathe out. When breathing in long, I know, I breathe in long. When breathing out long, I know, I breathe out long. When breathing in short, I know, I breathe in short. When breathing out short, I know, I breathe out short. I know experiencing the whole body. I know calming the bodily sensations. I know experiencing joy, experiencing peacefulness, experiencing the mental activity, calming the mental activity, experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, liberating the mind, reflecting on impermanence, reflecting on fading away, reflecting on elimination, reflecting on letting go. If anyone monks, speaking rightly, could say of anything, it is a noble dwelling, an excellent dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling. It is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing, that one could rightly say this. Monks, those monks who are trainees, who have not attained their mind's ideal, who dwell, aspiring for the unsurpassed security from bondage, enlightenment, for them, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, 
leads to the destruction of the tents. Those monks who are arahants, whose tents are destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached their goal, completely destroyed the fetters of existence, those completely liberated through final knowledge, wisdom. For them, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, leads to a peaceful dwelling in this very life and to mindfulness and clear comprehension. If anyone monks speaking rightly could say of anything, it is a noble dwelling, an excellent dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing, that one could rightly say this. All right. Thank you, Bossum. So here, the Buddha is actually talking about this rangers retreat that happens every year, where during the lifetime of the Buddha, during the rainy season, which is about a three-month period, he encouraged and guided his ordained practitioners to stay in one place, essentially at one temple for the entire rains. And he called this a rains retreat. And this is something that's actually practiced even today. From about mid-July until mid-October, you will see ordained practitioners will stay at one temple. This is their main temple. And that's where they essentially are assigned or that's where they've chosen to be. They have that main teacher there, their master teacher. And during that three-month period, they will just do some intensive learning and meditation for those three months. They don't travel around. The reason why the Buddha instituted this is because if you can imagine during the lifetime of the Buddha, he had many, many, many students that were around and, and roaming around the countryside. And during that time frame, they didn't have the type of roads and the type of pathways and the well-defined property lines like we have nowadays. So when people would walk around and when people would roam around, these ordained practitioners would be walking on the earth and the earth was very soft from the rain and it could actually damage the earth and it could damage the fields and affect the the yield of the crop for the farmers which then would affect the food supply in that local area so in order to ensure that his ordained practitioners weren't causing harm to the land and to the farmers and thus to the population of people for lack of food he asked them to all stay inside their primary temple or if they were going to be in a village you know stay at one house so to speak or in one village and not roam about for those three months and the buddha's saying here to his students that if anybody asks essentially you know where was i where did i reside during the rains retreat he said well i resided in breathing mindfulness meditation that was my dwelling that's where i resided and he's saying this is a very wonderful place to reside and then he goes through and uses his you know normal guidance about how he guides people in meditation to enter into meditation which is just a repeat of what we saw in chapter one and then he continues on adding some more details here i'm not sure what questions you guys may or may not have about these but i'll just kind of pause here and see what questions you guys might have if any Yes, teacher. So uh, if one is not involved in doing something uh, specific, so the best way, as I understand from what the Buddha described as dwelling at the breathing mindfulness meditation, so the best way is to 
a uh, try to keep the mind in this state while walking while uh, waiting for someone the way that i understand this chapter is that that not that you should be meditating 24 hours a day or all waking hours because that's actually impossible instead what he's saying is how residing in breathing mindfulness meditation in terms of while he's meditating while he's doing meditation this is a peaceful dwelling it's a noble dwelling it's an excellent dwelling being in breathing mindfulness meditation but he's not able to do that for three months solid so you'll see by the end of today's chapters where he talks about he meditates morning midday and evening and those were the three times that he meditated but he's just kind of describing meditation as a place to reside rather than just this practice that we do three times a day for 30 minutes or longer he's kind of casting it as you know this is a place that you can reside in terms of you know when you're in rains retreat when you're doing other things you know have this dedication and this diligence to meditating regularly throughout your day well uh, jen has her hand raised that's good to hear thank you basam um thank you teacher david Um, I feel like I'm jumping on a moving train because I've joined just re- today. Um, I have a question about my own practice, if that's all right to ask. Sure. I've noticed when um, I'm doing my breathing mindfulness meditation, I feel um, that it's I'm more focused on my breath. If I can fo- follow the sensation um, of the air coming in my nostril and then going down, you know, through my I don't know, we call it windpipe, right? Down. So not just at the nose. It seems like I concentrate better if I follow it more into my body. And I just, I wanted to ask about that. It's kind of a general question, you know, that that seems to help me. Yeah, if you're observing that it's helping you to stay focused and stay concentrated, then go for it and, and use it. You know, I, I remember doing that just a few times, but it's not something that I do regularly. I focus on the sound or the sensation of air. So that's usually what I guide students to do. And I would encourage you to be able to do more than one and develop that, but know that you have this one that you can always focus on what you're describing, which is following the air down. But the only thing that I maybe might guide you to think about is whether that's maybe a distraction for the mind of being able to kind of follow it visually in the mind and whether the mind's just looking for something to hold on to and it's not maybe comfortable just focusing on you know something as simple as the sound or the sensation of air. So I would encourage you to try to develop where you can focus on just the sound or the sensation of air because this sounds to me a bit like maybe the mind is wanting to kind of preoccupied with following the breath and maybe it's mm-hmm. not as content with just focusing on something as simple as the sound or the sensation can i ask a follow-up question please of course um, sure i'm very aware in between the breaths you know when I'm, when you're not mm-hmm. breathing in and out there's a stillness and i i can hear my heart beating mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm very aware of that. And mm-hmm. so would you advise I also try to ignore that? I'm not sure what that, how that would work. But. 
Yeah, the goal would be to just focus on the breath, the sound of the breath or the sensation of air. You'll experience these situations where the mind can become hypersensitive or hyper aware of things like the heartbeat or even the lungs expanding and extracting and things like this. And this is the mind kind of trying to go somewhere else other than where you're trying to control it to be. You're wanting to control it and build this discipline where you can just focus on the breath. And even though the mind wants to follow the air, you're like, no, 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 come back here to the breath. Even though it wants to hear the heartbeat and that's what it hears, no, 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 get back here to the breath. And you just would like to keep pulling it back and pulling it back. So we're defining the breath as specifically the sound of air coming in and out of the the nose area. Yes, that's what I would suggest that you focus on that. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. No more questions, Kishore. All right. Let's go to the next chapter then. And Jan, no worries that you're coming in at the end of this book. That You can start this program at any point. Well, let's go to Nick. Through breathing mindfulness meditation, no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. At Sabavati. Now, on that occasion, the venerable student was sitting not far from the perfectly enlightened one, with his legs folded crosswise, holding his body straight, having set up mindfulness in front of him. The perfectly enlightened one saw him sitting nearby, with his legs folded crosswise, his body straight, having set up mindfulness in front of him. Having seen him, he addressed the monks thus. Monks, do you see any shaking or trembling in this monk's body? Venerable sir, whenever we see that venerable one, whether he is sitting in the midst of the community or sitting alone in private, we never see any shaking or trembling in that venerable one's body. Monks, <clears throat> now that monk gains at will without trouble or difficulty that concentration through the development and cultivation of which no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind and what concentration is it through the development and cultivation of which no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind it is monks when concentration by mindfulness of breathing breathing mindfulness meditation has been developed and cultivated that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. And how monks is concentration by mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. Here, monks, a monk having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and set up mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. He trains thus, experiencing the whole body. And we repeat as chapter one. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. It is, monks, when concentration by mindfulness of breathing 
has been developed and cultivated in this way that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. All right. Thank you, Nick. So here the Buddha is talking about how sometimes in meditation, as you're letting go of what's going on in the mind, that there can be some shaking in the body. You can have some involuntary shaking where you don't realize that that's what's going on. You can have some jolts. You can have, you know, swaying. You know, some people kind of sway. This is all impermanent. This is kind of part of the whole process where the mind is gaining its discipline and gaining its control. And then when the mind becomes still, the mind becomes quieted and the mental activity is quieted, you'll see the same thing reflected in the body. This is where I usually will share about how the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. That when the mind is tranquil, the body will be tranquil. And the same thing is if the mind is shaken up and having lots of activity, then you'll see the same thing in the body, not just in meditation, but in daily life too. If you've ever experienced where you've been sitting somewhere and kind of bobbing your knee or tapping a table or, you know, doing different things, you know, repetitive movements in the body, this is because the mind is overstimulated and it's overactive. The more discipline that you can become in the mind, the more control that you can gain of the mind, you'll see that the body will follow right along in meditation like the Buddha is talking about here, but also in daily life too, that you'll gain this control over the mind, you'll gain this control over the body as well. And this is very helpful and you'll can see this gradually happen. So if you're experiencing or you have experienced any kind of shaking or trembling in any parts of the body, this is very normal for a mind that is unenlightened that maybe has some overactivity or as I sometimes talk about the unenlightened mind is this this string that's kind of been bound up and you've got all these emotions and situations in the mind that's been kind of bound up inside this ball of twine and as you're meditating and you're progressing to awaken the mind it's like unraveling this ball of twine and these experiences kind of bubble up to the surface and this can happen in meditation that as you're releasing and training the mind to let go you're letting go of these experiences and you can have these you know jolts in these shaking in the body but as the mind becomes more stable more steady more unshakable as it's getting closer to enlightenment you'll see that all of this stuff will subside because the mind is now still so the body will be still what questions do you guys have on this chapter that's good Miranda. um just to kind of clarify it is it seems very common for one who is just starting out their meditation practice to have bodily sensations and this shaking and swaying. Um, and sometimes that could make it harder for them to concentrate. What do you suggest that they do during this time? Keep practicing, keep going forward. That's the solution because all of these things are impermanent and the mind has to be able to see that as impermanent. And as the person has more dedication and diligence and continue to practice and stilling the mind and calming the mind, then they'll see that the body will become more tranquil as well. And you won't see the shaking or trembling in the body. So continuing and remember that the way that this path works is it's gradual training, gradual practice and gradual progress. Oftentimes what we look for in modern society is, you know, what's that quick fix? What's the thing that's going to fix it right now? 
But sometimes what needs to happen as part of this path is you just need to continue to develop your life practice, which includes meditation. And you just need to experience enough of this stuff and keep progressing forward and getting the mind more and more awakened where you can see the arising of the shaking and trembling. It continues for a few months, maybe, or a year or so, and then it kind of slowly fades away. And you see that as part of this natural law of how the Buddha explains the natural laws of existence of this universal truth of impermanence that you could start out meditating and for three, four, five, six months, everything's kind of seems like it's going fine. And then somewhere along the line, all of a sudden there's this shaking and trembling or this swaying that comes in. It's like, whoa, 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 what is that? And if the mind is like hooked or attached or craving that peacefulness that you had maybe for three to six months, now when the shaking and trembling occurs in the in the body, the mind's kind of shaken up by that. And that's an opportunity for you to see that this is impermanence, that your meditation was fairly peaceful for a while. Now it's being shaken up and that's impermanence. But then understanding that that's not permanent, that even that shaking and trembling will subside as you continue to develop your practice and the mind gets more and more trained. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. No more questions, Kishore. All right. 24. Yes, the next is volunteer is Miranda. The final in-breaths and out-breaths are known. Rahula, develop meditation on mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is a great fruit and great benefit. And how is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it is a great fruit and great benefit? Here, Rahula, a monk gone to the forest or to the foot of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, and established mindfulness in front of him. Ever mindful, he breathes in, mindful, he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long, or breathing out long, he knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows, I breathe in short, or breathing out short, he knows, I breathe out short. He trains thus, experiencing the whole body, repeated as in chapter one. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. Rahula, that is how mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, so that it is a great fruit and great benefit. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated in this way, even the final in-breaths and out-breaths are known as they cease, not unknown. Great. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is talking about as you develop your life practice throughout your life, you're obviously going to get to enlightenment at some point, either in this life or some future life. If you continue on this path, it leads to enlightenment. And as part of that path, you're developing awareness of the breath and breathing mindfulness meditation. And even when the mind is enlightened, you're going to continue to meditate. You're not going to just stop because you know what's led to your enlightenment. And there's been many aspects of this path that have led to your enlightenment. And breathing mindfulness meditation is one of those primary things that surely led to your enlightenment. And you will absolutely know that as you experience enlightenment. So all through your life, you will be so aware of the breath and meditation that the Buddha is sharing here, even at the time of death, you will have such awareness of the breath that you will essentially know your last in-breath in your last out breath. 
And if you've ever been around people who are really into these teachings and that are on their deathbed and actually dying and maybe attending to them as they're dying, you can actually see people that are doing that, that you can see that they're aware of their very last in-breath and their very last out-breath. And this is something the Buddha says that is possible and that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to do anything special. It's just part of what you're going to experience as part of developing your breathing mindfulness meditation practice that you will have the experience of knowing this is my last in-breath, this is my last out-breath, and being perfectly content and peaceful with that. Questions on this chapter? No question this time. All right, let's move to chapter 25. One who perceives non-self eradicates the conceit, I am. When monks, a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will be virtuous, practicing moral conduct. One who resides restrained by the training guidelines, possessed of wholesome conduct and resolving difficult situations, seeing danger in the slightest faults, having undertaken the training guidelines, will train in them. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predict predicted of him that he will get to hear at will, without trouble or difficulty, talk concerned with the holy life that is conducive to opening up the heart, that is, talk on elimination of desires, on contentment, on solitude, on not getting bound up with others, on arousing energy, on virtuous behavior, on concentration, on wisdom, on liberation, on the wisdom and vision of liberation. When a monk has wholesome companions, wholesome, com uh, wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will arouse energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities and acquiring wholesome qualities. He is strong, firm in effort, not casting off the duty of cultivating wholesome qualities. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will, he will be wise, possessing the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness. Having based himself on these five things, the monk should develop further another four things. One, the perception of an attractiveness of the body should be developed to abandon lust. Two, loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. Three, mindfulness of breathing should be developed to cut off thoughts. Four, the perception of impermanence should be developed to eradicate the conceit, I am. When one perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self is stabilized. One who perceives non-self eradicates the conceit, I am, which is Nibbana, enlightenment in this very life. All right. Thank you, Bossum. So here, the Buddha is going through some various things that a person would need to develop as part of their practice in order to get to enlightenment. And he talks about these five things, and then he talks about these other five things. 
This first paragraph, he's talking about developing wholesome friends or associates. That's really important because if you have a lot of people around you who are into unwholesome things and are negative influences, your mind's going to tend to move towards that. Where conversely, if you have a lot of wholesomeness around you, your mind's going to move towards that. And the Buddha explains that, that it can be predicted of somebody who has wholesome friends and associates that they are going to be virtuous or practicing good, wholesome moral conduct. And then through deciding to progress in this training and the guidance that the Buddha shares in terms of wholesome conduct, the Buddha talks about one being able to resolve difficult situations. This is where I talk about an enlightened being is typically a very good problem solver, right? Because the number one problem that every human being and every being in existence is experiencing is the cycle of rebirth and this discontentedness in the mind. By the time you get to enlightenment, you've solved this major problem of discontentedness in the cycle of rebirth. And you've taken many years to investigate that and figure out how to actually accomplish that. So you become a really good problem solver in your own life in terms of solving this major problem of discontentedness in the cycle of rebirth. But you tend to also be a very good problem solver in other parts of your life as well. Things that are challenging you maybe, like I mentioned, with a car or a home or your home life, your family life, your children, your job, things that are going on in the neighborhood, in your communities. You can understand problems really well and you can understand the solutions to those problems because you've investigated that and you've accomplished that as part of this path to enlightenment. And the Buddha talks about seeing the danger in the slightest faults. What he's talking about here is your own faults, your own wrongdoing, that you get to the point where you've developed so much wisdom on this path and you might see this period of time for three months or six months where the mind's really, really peaceful. And then you can slip up and kind of make a misstep on this path and cause a day or two of discontentedness or a few hours of discontentedness. Even the slightest little thought in terms of not practicing these teachings in the way that the Buddha prescribes can lead to certain discontentedness. And it can also lead to unwholesome outcomes too. And you can see this for your own life. You can see it in other people's lives too, but you should really be focused on your own life. And before when we didn't have the wisdom of this path, we wouldn't necessarily see that. You know, we were out there doing all kinds of different things in the world. But now once you start cultivating this wisdom, you start seeing the danger and the slightest little thoughts of things that you could potentially do or that you have done because you see the exact results of something that you've done that is a slightest uh, misstep in your practice and it leads to a few hours or a few days of discontentedness or it leads to some unwholesome results of something that comes back to you and affects your life in a negative way. And then when you understand this and you can see this so clearly that you've had, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months of peacefulness and boy, you made this minor, 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 slightest misstep and wow, look what it caused. And you get to be able to see this more and more clearly in your life as you start cleaning things up more and more. So the Buddha goes through and talks about these different things that need to be cultivated in your practice, which I won't necessarily go through all of those 
because they're not necessarily related to meditation, but we can talk about them if you guys have questions. Instead, I'd like to spend time on these four here because these are the four meditations that I teach as part of this path. If you've explored volume one, chapter 11, you would have seen four meditations in there. And the first one that I talk about is actually number three here, breathing mindfulness meditation. I talk about that in volume 11 first because that's the highest priority. And then I talk about and share about number two, loving kindness meditation, which is in chapter 11 as the second meditation there. And then the fourth one that the Buddha is talking about here is the third one that I speak about in chapter 11. And then I talk about this number one, which is the elimination of sexual cravings. So here there's these four meditations that we use in order to support our practice and accomplish the goals that we need with breathing mindfulness meditation. It's to eliminate craving, desire, attachment with loving kindness meditation. It's to eliminate anger, hatred, and ill will with the perception of unattractiveness of the body. This is to eliminate central desire, that fetter that's in the mind of central desire. But then this number four, the one that the chapter's really titled after, is developing the perception of impermanence to eradicate the conceit I am. Conceit is a fetter that is in the higher fetters. It's the eighth fetter. But also there's a certain portion of this that relates to the first fetter of personal existence view as well. Conceit is all about arrogance or pride or measuring or comparing as being superior or inferior to others. And as long as your mind's doing that, you're not going to be able to experience enlightenment because the mind's kind of looking for this pecking order and always wanting to be above others or maybe below others. And you're going to have a challenge to relate to people as equals and have just normal discussion looking at everybody as equals. And the way that you can think about this conceit of I am is the unenlightened mind with this first fetter of personal existence view and this eighth fetter of conceit is going to have these certain things in the mind like I am an American or I am a pilot or I am an artist or I am a teacher or I am a stay-at-home wife or I am a real estate agent or all of these different things of I am, I am, I am. I am a dad. I am a mom. I am this. I am that. And as long as we hold on to this I am, then there's this arrogance or this conceit. There's also this personal existence view. And this stands in the way of experiencing a mind that is peaceful and at ease. And by developing this perception of impermanence, realizing that all these things are impermanent, that we're not going to be a real estate agent permanently for the rest of our life. And if we cling on to that and we take that as part of our identity and then we start having arrogance or pride about it, when we're no longer our real estate agent, we're going to really struggle with that. Or if we consider ourselves, I am an artist, and then we have certain arrogance or pride about that, or we see that as part of our identity, our personal existence view. When we're unable to do our art anymore, then we struggle with that, and we have a lot of discontentedness around that. Or if somebody says something negative about artists, or somebody says something negative about 
real estate agent or that someone says something positive, then there's going to be these pleasant feelings and these painful feelings that are arising because of these things. So by developing the perception of impermanence and realizing all these things are impermanent and working with a teacher to realize non-self, understanding the universal truth of non-self, which may include using this meditation to realize non-self that I share, it can help you to see the impermanent nature of this physical body and the impermanent nature of what's in the mind that the mind might be clinging to now and train the mind to let that go. You would need to first have a really well-developed breathing mindfulness meditation practice first that really helps to soften up the mind. You'd really need to have a well-developed practice of the Eightfold Path, start experiencing the jhanas and things like this. And then that's the point where I suggest somebody really focus on looking at eliminating personal existence view and perhaps using this meditation that I teach. In terms of conceit, this is one of the hardest fetters for a lot of people to eliminate. You can start working on that you know, right away. Wherever you see arrogance or pride or measuring or comparing come up in the mind, judging others, you can cut that off and let that go and realize that that's an unwholesome aspect of the mind and you're not interested in allowing that to persist and remaining diligent to eliminate that. So by doing that, the Buddha is saying that's what leads to enlightenment in this very life. Questions on this chapter? No question, the same teacher. Okay. We'll go to chapter 26. Yes, so let's go to Nick. Things that lead to liberation of mind. Student, when liberation of mind has not developed, five things leads to its development. What five? Here, a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades. When liberation of mind has not developed, this is the first thing that leads to its development. Number two, again, a monk is virtuous, practicing moral conduct. He resides restrained by the training guidelines, possessed of wholesome conduct and determination, seeing danger in slightest faults, having undertaken the training guidelines, he trains in them. When liberation of mind has not developed, this is the second thing that leads to its development. Number three, again, a monk gets to hear at will without trouble or difficulty, talk concerned with the holy life that is conducive to opening up the heart. That is, talk on elimination of desires, on contentment, on solitude, on getting bound up with others, on arousing energy, virtuous behavior, on concentration, on wisdom, on liberation, on the wisdom and vision of liberation. When liberation of mind has not developed, this is the third thing that leads to its development. Number four, again, a monk has aroused energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities and acquiring wholesome qualities. He is strong, firm in effort, not casting off the duty of cultivating wholesome qualities. When liberation of mind has not developed, this is the fourth thing that leads to its development. Number five, again, a monk is wise. He possesses the wisdom 
that discerns a rising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness. When liberation of mind has not developed, this is the fifth thing that leads to its development. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will be virtuous, practicing moral conduct. One who resides restrained by the training guidelines will train in them. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will get to hear at will without trouble or difficulty, talk concerned with the holy life that is conducive to opening up the heart, that is talk on the elimination of desires, on the wisdom and vision of liberation. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will arouse energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities, not casting off the duty of cultivating wholesome qualities. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will be wise, possessing the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness. Having based himself on these five things, the monk should develop further another four things. Number one, the perception of unattractiveness of the body should be developed to abandon lust. Number two, loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. Number three, mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation should be developed to cut off thoughts. Number four, the perception of impermanence should be developed to eradicate the conceit I am. When one perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self is stabilized. One who perceives non-self eradicates the conceit I am, which is Nibbana, enlightenment in this very life. All right. Thank you, Nick. So this is very similar to the previous chapter with a bit more details. And here, these are the five things numbered and labeled that he talked about in the previous chapter as well. And something that I would like to bring your attention to is here in number three, where the Buddha talks about is conducive to opening up the heart. Wherever you see the Buddha talking about opening up the heart, this is referring to the mind. There's some cultures that feel that the mind is actually inside the heart. So that's what he's actually talking about. He's not talking about literally opening up the physical heart of the human being, but instead it's the mind. So this talk of concern of the holy life that is conducive to opening up the mind. I thought about actually changing these translations to actually be the mind uh, because I think that that really helps students. But then also I felt that there's a certain visual related to the way the Buddha actually said it with the heart and the mind being inside the heart where some cultures think that way that I think that really helps to bring some more understanding to the way that the Buddha spoke and what he was talking about. But what he's sharing here is he's talking about the mind. Some other things that I would like to bring to your attention are where he's talking down here about wisdom and vision of liberation. So here 
he's talking about how these different qualities that he talked about previously essentially lead to gaining this wisdom of how to liberate the mind and this vision. Whenever he talks about vision, what he's talking about is seeing things clearly. This is all about eradicating that ignorance or that unknowing of true reality. This is the problem with the unenlightened mind is that we don't see things clearly in the unenlightened state. We have this confusion or this misunderstanding about how the world works, essentially. The mind is unawakened to this wisdom. So whenever you see him talking about vision, he's talking about being able to see things clearly and seeing the natural laws of existence clearly. Then something else I would like to bring to your attention here, uh, more so than what we talked about in the previous chapter, is here in breathing mindfulness meditation, when I guide students in breathing mindfulness meditation, I will typically share, you know, to observe the breath and when the mind is off the breath, to cut off the thoughts, let it go and come back to the breath. Here's the reason why, because this is the guidance that the Buddha gave as well. But remember that when he's saying cut off the thoughts, he's not saying to eliminate the thoughts. If he was interested in saying eliminate the thoughts, he would have said that because he uses elimination in a lot of different places in his teachings. But he didn't say eliminate the thoughts. He said cut off the thoughts because as long as you're alive, you're going to always have thoughts. The goal of meditation is not to eliminate thoughts, but is to gain control over the mind that when the mind wants to take you into the past, you can cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. Or if the mind wants to take you to the future, you can see that, you can observe that sooner and sooner, cut that off and let it go. Or if there's thoughts or ideas or perceptions that come into the mind during meditation, you can cut those off and let them go and come back to the breath. And this helps you to gain control of a mind so that in daily life, when certain things arise, unwholesome thoughts are arising in the mind, you can cut that off and let it go in daily life. In daily life, when wholesome thoughts arise, you will follow that. You will think about that. You'll have certain ideas, things that will benefit your life. As you clear out the pollution of the mind, that craving, anger, and ignorance gets removed more and more, you actually have more wholesome thoughts. This will be really helpful for your life in terms of your personal life and your professional life. All these wholesome thoughts will start coming through that maybe weren't coming through at other times in your life. So what you're doing in daily life is cutting off all the unwholesome thoughts so that you can allow the wholesome thoughts to permeate. And the way that you gain that control and that discipline is that in meditation, when you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation, is that you cut off and let go of all thoughts that are coming up because that's not the time to think about wholesome things and make plans for your life and you know all those kind of things. Instead, this is this dedicated, active, purposeful training session where you're training the mind so that you can have more control over it. So that's why you're cutting off all thoughts during meditation. But you will have thoughts even when the mind is enlightened. You might go for five, 10 minutes in meditation and boom, there's a thought. But you'll observe it right away and you'll cut it off right away. Where in the past, you might have been getting bombarded with thoughts and you found it very challenging to cut them off and let them go as you develop and train your mind more, you will have these elongated periods of peacefulness and calm and stilling and quieting of the mental activity in the mind. And then there'll be a thought. It'll just be one thought. 
you observe it really quick and cut it off and bring the mind right back to the breath. So that's why I use that language there. But just understand that cut off doesn't mean eliminate. It means cut off that particular thought at that moment and bring the mind back to the breath. And then focus on the breath and focus on the breath and focus on the breath. And then when the mind leaves again off the breath, cut that off and let it go and come back. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Seems that Miranda has a question. Let's go to her. Um, sir, how would a practitioner be able to figure out if or when the mind is ready to begin focusing on eliminating the ego? And if they think they might be ready, what steps should they take next? I think in terms of eliminating the ego, understanding the ego is the personal existence view and the fetter of conceit. That, that fetter of conceit, that arrogance, that pride, that measuring and comparing, that judgment, you can be cutting that off from the very beginning. That tends to be one of the more challenging ones for people to eliminate. And that's why the Buddha most likely put it as a higher fetter because it's a real challenging one. It's one that you really need to work on multiple years to really get rid of. So wherever you see that arising, that conceit, arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, comparing, cut that off and let it go. And if you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation, it'll get easier and easier for you to do that in daily life. And you'll be able to see the ego more and more in daily life. So you'll be able to cut that off and let it go. But in terms of personal existence view, that first fetter, I usually recommend for people to kind of wait until they get to the jhanas to really work on that one because it tends to take some time to really understand what is the eightfold path, what is the four noble truths, what are the five precepts, developing a meditation practice, really getting a really good solid foundation laid first. And then once someone gets going with that, they should start seeing the jhanas. They should start seeing the mind entering into the jhanas and experiencing what that's like. And that's where some two, three, four, five discussions with a teacher about this personal existence view and what is the universal truth of non-self is really helpful to have a few of those conversations and really start understanding how to practice that in terms of some things that you'll need to change in daily life in terms of the way that you speak, the way that you think about this physical body, the way you think about the mind, the way you think about these possessions and things that we have in the world. And as you start understanding that, that's where it's really helpful to, I think, consider bringing in the meditation to realize non-self if that's something that the practitioner needs. It can really help to train the mind to see that impermanence that the Buddha is talking about down here, developing that perception of impermanence to eradicate the conceit I am. This really helps to be able to see very clearly how the mind really holds on to this body and it holds on to the identity in the mind and it doesn't want to let go. And this meditation can really help you to do that. So it's when you get to those jhanas that I really suggest someone to start working on eliminating personal existence view. But even there, you know, you can kind of see for yourself that you really understand the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts. You're practicing this stuff really well. You've got your meditation practice going. You're consistently meditating two or three times a day for 30 minutes or longer. You should start knowing like, okay, I've got this stuff, you know, going pretty well. Let me start focusing on this 
fetter of personal existence view because that's what's going to help you get to that first stage of enlightenment. But with conceit, you can be doing that all the way through. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. No more questions, teacher. All right, chapter 27. Yes, the next volunteer is Miranda. 10 perceptions for curing of an affliction. If Ananda, you visit the monk Girimananda and speak to him about 10 perceptions, it is possible that on hearing about them, his sickness will immediately subside. What are the 10? One, the perception of impermanence. Two, the perception of non-self. Three, the perception of unattractiveness of the body. Four, the perception of danger. Five, the perception of abandoning. Six, the perception of freedom from strong feelings. Seven, the perception of elimination. Eight, the perception of non-delight in the entire world. Nine, the perception of impermanence in all conditioned mental objects. And 10, mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation. And what, Ananda, is the perception of impermanence? Here, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, a monk reflects thus, form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, volitional formations, choices and decisions are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent. Thus he resides, reflecting on impermanence in these five aggregates subject to clinging. This is called the perception of impermanence. And what ananda is the perception of non-self? Here, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, a monk reflects thus. The eye is non-self, forms are non-self, the ear is non-self, sounds are non-self, the nose is non-self, odors are non-self, the tongue is non-self, flavors are non-self, the body is non-self, physical objects are non-self, the mind is non-self, mental objects are non-self, thus he resides, reflecting on non-self in these six internal and external sense bases. This is called the perception of non-self. And what ananda is the perception of unattractiveness of the body? Here, a monk reviews this very body upward from the soles of the feet and downward from the tips of the hairs, enclosed in skin, as full of many kinds of impurities. There are in this body, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, pleura, spleen, lungs, intestines, mesentery, stomach, excrement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, fluid of the joints, urine. Thus he resides reflecting on unattractiveness in his body. This is called the perception, perception of unattractiveness of the body. And what ananda is the perception of danger? Here, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, a monk reflects thus, this body is the source of much pain and danger, for all sorts of afflictions arise in this body. That is, eye disease, disease of the inner ear, nose disease, tongue disease, body disease, head disease, disease of the external ear, mouth disease, tooth disease, cough, asthma, catarrh, pyrexia, fever, stomachache, fainting, dysentery, gripes, cholera, leprosy, scabies, hemorrhage, diabetes, hemorrhoids, cancer, fistula, illnesses originating from bile, phlegm, wind, or their combination, illnesses produced by change of climate, illnesses produced by careless behavior, illnesses produced by assault, 
or illnesses produced as the result of unwholesome trauma and cold, heat, hunger, thirst, defecation, and urination. Thus he resides, reflecting on danger in this body, which is called the perception of danger. And what ananda is the perception of abandoning. Here, a monk does not tolerate an arisen sensual thought. He abandons it, dispels it, terminates it, and obliterates it. He does not tolerate an arisen thought of ill will, an arisen thought of harming, evil, unwholesome states. Whenever they arise, he abandons them, dispels them, terminates them, and obliterates them. This is called the perception of abandoning. And what ananda is the perception of freedom from strong feelings. Here, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, a monk's, monk reflects thus. This is peaceful, this is superb, that is, the stilling of mind activities, the letting go of all greed, the destruction of craving, freedom from strong feelings, nibbana, enlightenment. This is called the perception of freedom from strong feelings. And what, Ananda, is the perception of elimination? Here, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, a monk reflects thus. This is peaceful, this is superb, that is, the stilling of mind activities, the letting go of all greed, the destruction of craving, elimination, nibbana. This is called the perception of elimination. And what ananda is the perception of non-excitement in the entire world? Here, a monk refrains from any engagement in playing, mental standpoints, adherences, and underlying tendencies in regard to the world, abandoning them without clinging to them. This is called the perception of non-excitement in the entire world. And what ananda is the perception of impermanence in all conditioned mental objects? Here a monk is repelled, unenthusiastic, and disinterested by all conditioned mental objects. This is called the perception of impermanence in all conditioned mental objects. And what ananda is mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation? Here a monk having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut sits down. Having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body and established mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long. Breathing in short, he knows, I breathe in short. He trains thus, experiencing the whole body, calming the bodily activity, experiencing joy, experiencing peacefulness, experiencing the mental activity, calming the mental activity experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, liberating the mind, reflecting on impermanence, reflecting on fading away, reflecting on elimination, I will breathe in, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in, reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. This is called mindfulness of breathing. If Ananda, you visit the monk Girimananda and speak to him about these 10 perceptions, it is possible that on hearing about them, he will immediately recover from his sickness. Then, when the Venerable Ananda had learned these 10 perceptions from the Perfectly Enlightened One, he went to the Venerable Girmananda and spoke to him about them. When the Venerable Girmananda heard about these 10 perceptions, his sickness immediately subsided. The Venerable Girmananda recovered from that sickness, and that is how he was cured of his sickness. All right, thank you, Miranda. So here, these are these 10 things that the Buddha explains very clearly, and I also explain them in the explanations as well. 10 things that are really important to develop your understanding of. 
as you progress on this path. I'll just kind of hit on a couple of these and we can explore any of the ones that you guys would like to explore. But let me just share a couple of these that we haven't necessarily talked about this particular aspect of it. Number three here, when the Buddha is talking about the perception of unattractiveness of the body, he lists out the various items of the body where he talks about the body hair on the head, the hair of the body, the nails, the teeth, so forth and so on, continuing all the way through. This is what he teaches as the 32-part body meditation, where you can actually meditate on each individual body part. This is a way to help develop the unattractiveness of the body. This isn't something that I put in volume one of the book, and I haven't put it in any other parts of the book series, but if this is something that somebody needs, I can help you with that. And I typically will offer this for people who might have challenges with the way that I teach the unattractiveness of the body, which is I usually teach it by staring at a dead corpse or an image of a dead corpse or a you know a partially dissected corpse. This is something that they didn't have available to them during the lifetime of the Buddha in terms of image. You know, they had actual corpses where they would be burning on a funeral pile and then people could meditate and kind of smell the body. They could see the body. They could hear things that were going on as the body was being burned. So they could do that, but they weren't able to do it unless there was a dead body around. Where nowadays we have this ability to look at images and we can actually meditate on a dead body pretty much any time at will through images that we have access to. So the Buddha gave people a meditation that they could do at all times which during his lifetime was to meditate on the 32 parts of the body. And this is one that can sometimes be helpful for somebody. I used to do this in the past, and it's something that some people struggle with this one. Some people find it better to meditate by looking at images of a partially dissected corpse, but this is how you develop this unattractiveness of the body when you're ready to do that. Some other things that I would like to share with you that I saw here that I think will be really helpful just to point out is here in number six and in number seven, the Buddha is talking about freedom from strong feelings, which is the diminishing of discontentedness. And in number seven, he's talking about the elimination of discontentedness, essentially getting to enlightenment. And of course, we know that you need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And I've shared how breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity are the two generalized trainings that we're using in order to eliminate craving, desire, attachment in the mind. Well, the Buddha is saying the same thing here in both of these two, number six and number seven, where he's essentially going into talking about starting meditation. This is the common line that he uses, you know, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree or to an empty hut. This is where he's setting up and sharing, you know, meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation. And then he's talking about here, stilling the mind, letting go of all greed or craving, destruction of craving. This is the connection that he's making for you between breathing mindfulness meditation and the elimination of craving, desire, attachment. And he does that in number six and in number seven, essentially the exact same thing. And then I think it's helpful to talk about number eight here particularly because this is one that people have a lot of challenges with and people are experiencing this right now where there's this 
certain craving for things to be a certain way in the world. And when we see things that we don't like, then the mind has these painful feelings of sadness or anger or frustration. Certain things that have happened in the world, uh, I've heard from people from different students that when there was the protest in Washington, D.C., and people went into the Capitol, that there were people who were very discontent about that having happened. They felt like that was kind of an assault on their country. Or like now with the war that we see in Ukraine, there's people who are very discontent with this because this is kind of a disruption to the peaceful society that we all kind of come to know and understand. Well, if these things are shaking up the mind or other things, if you see a murder or a rape or different things in your local news and it shakes up the mind, this is because the mind is craving for the world to be a certain way. And the Buddha says this different ways at different times in his teachings. He talks about the craving in regard to the world or clinging to the world. And here he's talking about developing the perception of non-excitement in the entire world. This isn't to say that you don't enjoy being in the world and you don't have enjoyment when you're with your friends or your family or you enjoy your job. He's not talking about going around being miserable and complaining about things that are going on in your life. What he's talking about here is letting go of that clinging, that craving of having things in the world to be a certain way. And that's what he means by non-excitement in the entire world is not holding on to the world. And one of the ways that you know that the mind is holding on to the world is the things that I've already mentioned. But also here the Buddha talks about mental standpoints, adherences, and underlying tendencies in regard to the world. So if you have really strong political views of wanting something to be done, if you have this desire for abortion to be eliminated and not allowed to be conducted, or you have a desire for abortion to stay legal, or you have this desire to outlaw cigarettes, or this desire for cigarettes to be legal, or different things like this. If you have these mental standpoints, adherences, these strong views and opinions, this is the mind clinging to the world, wanting it to be a certain way, where if you're moving to enlightenment, you're going to understand that everybody experiences their gamma, this cause and effect, this action and result, the results of our decisions. And when we make wholesome decisions, it leads to wholesome outcomes. When we make unwholesome decisions, it leads to unwholesome outcomes. And it really doesn't matter what the actual laws of the land are, that if you're moving towards understanding the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings and you're developing your life practice based on the teachings of the Buddha, then whether you have this strong desire that abortion should be legal or illegal or cigarettes should be legal or illegal from a human law standpoint or society's laws, if you understand that there's this natural law of gamma that is above and beyond any kind of societal laws that we have and that that's what people are really going to be experiencing in their life, then you come to the conclusion that these societal laws really don't matter a whole lot. That if everybody actually learned and practiced the teachings of the Buddha, we wouldn't actually need society laws because everybody would be practicing a much higher law than society's laws. And of course, 
we're not going to be able to influence or force or push or control people or pressure people into learning and practicing the Buddhist teachings. But in order to get to liberation, you have to let go of this world and realize that the world is going to function however it's going to function. And there are certain people that need those societal laws to kind of see a little bit of guidance. But when you start learning the wisdom of the Buddha, the natural laws of existence are a much higher law beyond any societal laws. And that's what a practitioner who's looking to get to liberation and freedom of mind is going to be focused on is those, not these mental standpoints, adherences, political discussions. doesn't mean you can't have a discussion about politics or discuss the laws of abortion or discuss the laws of whether cigarettes should be legal or illegal. You can discuss plenty of these things and have discussions with people, but it's when the mind is clinging and wanting the world to be a certain way that the mind is going to be forceful and pressured and become discontent in conversations where you have a really strong view and somebody else has an opposing view, the mind's not going to be comfortable with this impermanence that someone's disagreeing with you. And then there may be this argument or this harsh discussion that takes place as a result, which is only going to produce unwholesome results for you. So here the Buddha is talking about training the mind to let go of craving for the world to be a certain way. And he's describing that as non-excitement in the entire world. But of course, you're going to have things that you enjoy about this world. And that's normal for anybody, including an enlightened being. And then finally, the last one he talks about here is, of course, breathing mindfulness meditation, because that's the one that really helps all of these others come into place, whether it's this perception of impermanence and all conditioned objects, which is number nine, you can't really get to that if you're not meditating. You have to really soak in through meditation, soak in this perception of impermanence and all conditioned objects. And you do that through breathing mindfulness meditation. The one that we were just talking about, about letting go of the world, the way that you do that is through breathing mindfulness meditation. You train the mind to let go, let go, let go. And we can go backwards and we could talk about each single one of these, how they're all connected to breathing mindfulness meditation. And that's why this teaching is in this book. So the Buddha talks at many different points about how breathing mindfulness meditation is such a priority. And here again, he's laying it out for you that it's this priority because it essentially helps you to develop the perception of all these other things. And then this particular teaching was shared because there was a certain person who was ill, who was sick, and teaching these particular things and learning these apparently helped this person to overcome their sickness and their illness. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Let's go to Jen. Thank you, teacher David. Thank you, Vasan. Um, Teacher, please explain. I don't understand what conditioned mental objects are or what that means. Sure. So there's mental objects that are in the mind. And what a mental object is, is something like central desire. That's a mental object. Or complacency. That's a mental object. Or ill will. That's a mental object. When we think about anger... You know, we talk about anger, hatred, ill will as this mental object, but let's talk about anger as like a feeling. Anger as a feeling is just a feeling. It comes and goes and it's pretty quick. You know, it arises quick and it diminishes quick. 
But this mental object of something like ill will, it's kind of deeply rooted in the mind. It's conditioned based on all of our past experiences. We're not born with ill will in the mind. Ill will gets formed through conditions, through certain experiences that we have. As we grow up as an infant, maybe somebody hits us, maybe somebody slaps us, maybe we experience as we become a toddler and a a young child, we experience this harshness of the world, we experience people being rude and impolite, and as we get into our teens and our early 20s, we start having this mental object of, of ill will, and now it starts coming out towards other people. And part of what we're doing as this practice is we're training the mind to uproot these mental objects. And the one of ill will, of course, is antidoted with loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life. That's how we uproot this conditioned mental object is we replace it with these affirmations of may you be peaceful, may you be safe, may you be well, may you be free of discontentedness and the suffering that it causes. So there's all these different mental objects that you become aware of as part of this path. And then the Buddha gives you the antidote or the solution or the remedy of how to fix those mental objects. When we say conditioned, condition is some condition created it. It didn't just come by itself. So that's why a baby isn't born with ill will. It doesn't come out of the womb looking to hurt people. It develops that as part of the conditioned experiences that we have. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. No more questions, dear. All right. We'll move on to the next chapter. By the way, it's really nice to see Jan and Donnie and Nick, you guys coming into the class. Haven't seen you guys for a while. It's really nice to see you guys in class. So chapter 28. Yes, let's go to Nick. Five things to penetrate the unshakable. The first discourse. Monks possessing five things. A monk pursuing mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, and no long time penetrates the unshakable. What five? Number one. Here, a monk has few undertakings few tasks is easy to support and is easily contented with the necessities of life number two he eats little and is intent on moderation regarding food number three he is rarely drowsy and is intent on alertness number four he has learned much remembers what he has learned and cultivates what he has learned Those teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing, which proclaim the perfectly complete and pure spiritual life. Such teachings as these, he has learned much of, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated, and penetrated well by view. Number five. He reviews the extent to which his mind is liberated. Possessing these five things, a monk pursuing mindfulness of breathing in no long time penetrates to the unshakable. The second discourse, monks possessing five things, a monk developing mindfulness of breathing in no long time penetrates to the unshakable. What five? 
these uh, repeat except for number four, which this is like me to read that, Teacher David. Yes, that's what I was just getting ready to say. Thanks, Nick. Okay. So on these other discourses, the only thing that changes is number four. So number four here on the second discourse, he gets to hear at will without trouble or difficulty talk concerned with the holy life that is conducive to opening up the heart that is talk on the elimination of desires, on contentment, on solitude, on not getting bound up with others, on arousing energy, on virtuous behavior, on concentration, on wisdom, on liberation, on the wisdom and vision of liberation. The third discourse, number four, he is a forest dweller who resorts to remote lodgings. Okay, and the last paragraph on all of these, possessing five things, a monk cultivating mindfulness of breathing in no long time penetrates the unshakable. All right, thank you, Nick. So here, what the Buddha is talking about in terms of penetrating to the unshakable, the unshakable is the enlightened mind. Once the mind is enlightened, it's unshakable, it's steady, it's calm. You know the truth. You have deep wisdom. You know that you no longer experience discontentedness. So if somebody shares with you that Mercury is in a certain orbit and that means everybody's going to speak strange and technology is going to go afoot and all kinds of problems, you'll probably just smile because you know that this isn't true. This is a belief that somebody has. Or if somebody tells you that, you know, there's these big bag boogeymen out in the world and they're trying to control the whole world and you know you can't get ahead in life because everybody's you know beholden to this small group of people who's controlling the whole world you might just smile because you know the truth your mind is unshakable you have this unshakable wisdom because you've figured it out you've looked and independently verified the teachings with guidance that you know the three universal truths the four noble truths the eightfold path all these teachings we could just go on and on and on that the mind just becomes unshakable because there's no discontentedness there's nothing that could shake up your mind and the buddha is explaining here these things that actually lead to this unshakable enlightened mind and the first one here is a person has few undertakings, few tasks, is easy to support, and is easily contented with the necessities in life. If you think about how you might have led your life at different times, or maybe how you're leading your life now, if you've got this long list of to-do items, and you're just go, 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 all day long in your life, this is craving, desire, attachment. The mind is just lurching and longing and yearning from one thing to the next to the next to the next and you might even take certain uh, pride or you might have certain self-worth if you get through your list in a given day and if you don't get that list taken care of maybe you feel diminished or you have discontentedness so someone who's progressing in life towards enlightenment they know that this is a life journey and you know you don't need to jam pack your day every single day with this long laundry list of things to take care of so the buddha is essentially saying do one thing at a time you know not feeling like you have to accomplish a mountain of things in a particular given day the second one he's talking about here is in terms of eating sometimes when we eat food if there's a lot of central desire there might be this 
hoarding of food where you draw in food and you eat this enormous amount of food and it takes a lot for the body to digest all of that and it takes the mind a lot to actually go out and work and acquire all that food so a person who's looking to eliminate central desire and who's moving towards enlightenment you might notice that you eat, tend to eat more in moderation you might eat just one or two meals a day and be completely content with that and not have to have these big huge meals gorging meals and things like that that is going to just kind of weigh on your energy of the body and of the mind to have to digest all of this food and there won't be emotional eating too sometimes when our mind is being shaken up all the time with discontentedness there's a lot of emotional eating you know you might eat when you're sad or when you're angry or when you're frustrated or when you're grieving you might notice that there's emotional eating when you start eliminating the craving desire attachment in the mind through this path then you'll eat in moderation and you won't experience this emotional eating either which can be very problematic for the body and the mind and then you'll notice number three that this drowsiness or this you know constant sleepiness which tends to lean towards complacency that you tend to eliminate that that when the mind is polluted and it's got craving anger and ignorance in there the mind is very heavy and it's a real burden to carry around all this pollution but as you clear out the mind more and more getting closer and closer to enlightenment you start noticing that the mind is more alert and more attentive and you don't have this drowsiness you know kind of sleepiness you can stay very focused and concentrated on something like this a two-hour class where typically what most of us are used to is kind of a 45 minute to 50 minute class with a 10 minute break 15 minute break then coming back another 45 minutes 50 minutes where as your mind's getting closer and closer to enlightenment you can stay focused on something for many hours at a time and not feel any tiredness whatsoever any drowsiness the mind can be relaxed and calm but yet attentive and alert at the same time so relaxed and calm but attentive and alert at the same time and this is very ideal for the mind because you can maintain that for very long periods of time where if you didn't have that calmness in that relaxed aspect of your mind if the mind was really uptight and craving you wouldn't be able to maintain your alertness and attentiveness because the mind's craving and it's all over the place you can't focus in a two-hour class like this because the mind's thinking about all these other things but when your mind is relaxed and calm then you can maintain your alertness and attentiveness for a very long period of time this fourth one in this first discourse about cultivating the teachings you know this is something that's really important is to learn and practice the teachings and understand them very very well and be able to articulate them during the buddha's lifetime they recited the teachings you'll see this in the various parts of the buddha's teachings where he talks about reciting verbally because it was an oral tradition so he really impressed upon his students to remember his discourses word for word for word that's not something that you need to do today that's not required but what you need to do is you need to be able to understand the teachings that when you read some of the buddha's 
words or teachings, you understand what they mean and how to apply them to your life. So you're not going to necessarily be able to recite the teachings verbally like they did during the lifetime of the Buddha, but you understand the teachings when you read them. You can very clearly see what the meaning of them are and you can then apply them in your life. And the way that you get to that is through investigating the teachings and penetrating them very deeply. This is why we spend time talking about them in this class. And if you guys have conversations with each other outside of class, the Buddha used to encourage his students to talk to each other because this allows you to bring the teachings up into the mind, articulate them in a way that you think about them, and then you can have very nice conversations with each other. And then where you have disagreements or you have questions, then you reach out to your teacher to clarify those things. This really helps you to bring the teachings to the forefront of the mind. And then this fifth one where he says, review the extent to which the mind is liberated. This is something you should always be looking at, not in an obsessive way, not in a way with arrogance or pride, but just observe that when you experience discontentedness, observe, ah, that was discontentedness. There was some craving there. Otherwise, I wouldn't have felt that discontentedness, even if it's just a slight little ickiness. Because as long as the ego is in there, that conceit, which is one of the higher fetters, so it's going to tend to be in there for a really long period of time. As long as that ego is in there, you're going to be experiencing discontentedness here and there, and you're going to just be dismissive sometimes. Ah, that wasn't really discontentedness. Ah, that wasn't really craving. I'm, I'm already close to enlightenment. I'm already in the second or third stage of enlightenment. I'm, I'm really close. That, that wasn't discontentedness. If you are dismissive of these situations, then you're going to miss the opportunity to really see the true craving, desire, attachments that are causing it so that you can eliminate it. Whereas if you're dismissive of it, that means it's going to keep repeating until you actually eliminate it. So by reviewing to the extent that your mind is liberated, meaning being observant and diligent when you are experiencing discontentedness, then you can take action to actually fix it. Whereas if you're complacent and you're not aware when the mind becomes discontent, then you're not going to be able to hone in and really focus in on what the craving desire attachments are that are causing that discontentedness so that you can eliminate them and then no longer experience that ever again. And then going on to number four of the second discourse here, if you're cultivating this path and you're surrounding yourself with wholesome friends and companions, you're diving into the resources that a teacher is providing, you're interacting in classes, then the Buddha is saying here that you're not going to have trouble to have discussion and talk related to this spiritual life, to this path to enlightenment, because you're surrounding yourself with the resources that you need. You're surrounding yourself with the wholesome friends. You have a teacher to reach out to. You're creating a life where you're surrounding yourself with these teachings so that you can absorb them very well. And this particular one is really interesting. You don't see so often in the Buddhist teachings where he says, not getting bound up with others. What he's talking about here is that when you are at work or you're in your family life or what have you, and you see people that are very sad or very angry or very frustrated or very happy, very pleasant, very euphoric, uh, when you see these things, you shouldn't allow your feelings and emotions to get bound up into their anger, into their sadness, or into their thrill or euphoria. 
other people who aren't on this path, their mind's going to be going up and down through pleasant feelings and painful feelings. They're going to be experiencing these conditioned feelings. But you're trying to kind of hone that in and diminish these conditioned feelings. And what you might be used to in the past is that when a friend tells you about their close friend or family passing away, you might feel sorry for them or empathetic to them. Or when someone gets angry, you might get angry with them. Or if somebody gets this thrill, this euphoria, you might get thrill or euphoria with them, allowing your mind to run away from you because this person is around you. And you're going to be around people whose minds are doing those kind of things. And the Buddha is saying, don't get bound up with that. And also, you're going to see people who are into all kinds of different things. Even on this path, you might have people that are like, oh, you can drink alcohol, just don't drink too much. Or, oh, you can smoke cigarettes, just don't smoke cigarettes too much. Or, oh, you can still do this or that. You know, people are going to have these different views and different opinions and different thoughts about this path. And if you allow yourself to get bound up with them and attached to them and thinking that, you know, this is a way to be a good friend is commiserate with somebody. This is not going to allow you to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, consent mind with joy where the mind is liberated because your mind is bound up and it's still conditioned on the emotions of other people. And then this third one, number four, during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was really kind of known that he would encourage people to go out to the forest and be in the forest alone in order to practice at certain points. You know, after he developed, after a practitioner developed, a student developed their practice to a certain point, you know, they would go out in the forest by themselves. And this was a great way for them to liberate the mind and let go of the world and really focus on their own practice. Well, today you may not go out into the forest or into the jungle, but one of the things that you will definitely need to do is train the mind to be alone and to be content with that. Nowadays, sometimes when you go to the mall or you go to dinner or you go to the movies, these are times where we typically will take other people with us. And we feel like we need to take people with us to the mall or we need to take people out to a restaurant or to a movie. Maybe you feel like you're a loner or you're no good or you don't have friends or you're concerned about how other people might perceive you if you're going to a movie by yourself or you're sitting at a restaurant eating by yourself or you walk around the shopping mall by yourself. You might be concerned about how you're being perceived. This is that personal existence view. So what I encourage you to do is find opportunities to get out and be alone, whether it's a mall, whether it's eating in a restaurant by yourself, going to the movies by yourself, maybe going to a park and going for a walk by yourself. Learn to be content alone. And this is really helpful for the mind because if you're always with other people and you've always got this input of conversation and talking with people, then you can't really sit with your own thoughts and you can't really do this fifth one that the Buddha talks about, which is look at the extent to which your mind is liberated. If you can't be content and peaceful alone and with your own thoughts, then the mind is not well liberated. So you need to put the mind in situations where you regularly go out alone or spend time alone or at home alone, even just staying at home or going on vacation alone, taking holidays alone, taking trips alone, things like this. This is really, really helpful for the mind. 
as you get closer and closer to enlightenment and there's people around you who aren't on the path, you're going to notice that they're going to be sleeping for 8, 10, 12, 16 hours, perhaps some people. I know at one time I was sleeping 14, 16 hours a day at one point. And then as your mind becomes more and more liberated, you might notice you only sleep four to six hours a day and other people are needing to sleep longer because they're carrying around this burden of craving. So you're going to be awake and around in your house while other people are sleeping. You're going to be alone as part of your journey to enlightenment. This is an independent journey, even though you're doing it with the guidance of a teacher and you've got a community around you, it is your own independent journey. So you need to get content and peaceful with being alone. And if you're not one that goes out in the woods and camp alone, you need to find these other ways of these other suggestions that I mentioned. So these are the things that I thought I would share with you guys on these chapters or this chapter. If you guys have other questions, feel free to let me know. Well, let's go to Nick. Thank you, Boston. Thank you, teacher David. Um, I would just like to uh, share something about number one here. And before this chapter was read, you said, uh, you said, hey, it's good to see a few of you, you know, that uh, haven't been here on the Saturdays. Um, I like to say it's glad to be here and glad to be participating, teacher David. But uh, this has to do with number one, for me at least, and I think just having a little discussion here might be beneficial to others. Um, the way I read number one, like uh, here a monk has few undertakings, few tasks, is easy to support, and is easily contented with the necessities of life. So I think what this one is getting at is um, the difference between householders and monks. Um, householders can really have struggles with this one. I know I've been working on this um, and just I've had some epiphanies just over the past week um, due to discussions on the side with you, Teacher David. You know, uh, you're telling me to slow down with things and uh, I've been guilty of this. I've been taking on too many tasks and then you get discontent you know, when they're all not done. You know, uh, I got a lot of things and that's probably a hurdle for some householders you know, the big laundry list of things to do. Kids got to be certain places, you know, you got to, you got to do a little work. You got to go over here and trying to keep up with the teachings. One of the, uh, and that goes on to why I haven't been here on, uh, on Saturdays. So I had another obligation. So this is part of it. Um, and one of the discussions I had with you, uh, I said, Hey, I'm just trying to keep up with Saturday's class, you know, on the recordings. And you said, Nick, this is what, what you know, it, it soaked into the mind a little bit. I was thinking on it. He said, Nick, why, why do you feel that you have to keep up with the class? You said the recordings would be there. And you know what they are. So that kind of put the mind at ease. So because I couldn't make Saturdays um, because Jackson had sports and things, you know, I've been doing it slowly. It might take me the whole week to do the recording and, and just doing a chapter a night, you know, to keep up with that. And that's okay. You know, I realized it was okay. So I wasn't being so hard on myself. And then like um, teacher David, we were discussing um, just some other projects on the side. And uh, I was okay with, you know, um, sorting this out. And I didn't, I wasn't able to start the side project we discussed for, for about a week. 
and I was okay with that, you know, and then I just started it. But uh, I was really doing this, number one, I realized, hey, don't bite off more than you can chew. It's okay to just do a few things and have wholesome outcomes instead of trying to rush and the go, go, go with like the household life. And over the past week, that's what I did. I pondered some of the things that you told me, some of the guidance, and I slowed down. And I've only been doing a few tasks. And I'll tell you, I'm more at peace. So I, I just wanted to share that. And, you know, uh, I thought it might help some other people. Yeah, the Buddhist teachings are the truth, Nick. The more that you learn and the more that you practice, you'll see that they're 100% the truth. And, you know, it is challenging in our household life because we're taught, at least in Western culture, that, you know, the measure of our worth of a person is how productive you are. And productivity is typically measured by how many tasks you get done in a certain day. This is part of that delusion, part of that misunderstanding, part of that confusion that the mind goes around thinking that if I get 10 or 20 things done in a day, I'm really accomplished and therefore I have more self-worth because of that. And what the real truth of the matter is that you're seeing, Nick, and that other people can see too, is that by reducing the number of tasks that we put on ourselves and just kind of take things one at a time and do what the Buddha is saying here, which is having few undertakings and few tasks and just handle things in the present moment, you'll find more that the mind is at ease and that it's content and peaceful that way. And that we can lead this household life and kind of get things sorted. This is part of what the path to enlightenment is. Not only are you clearing out the pollution of the mind, you're gaining this control over the mind, you're getting this wisdom, this moral conduct, this mental discipline. But what you're really doing is you're sorting out your life as well. You know, what is the livelihood that I'm going to really partake in for my life in order to sustain my life? You know, what kind of friends am I going to cultivate in my life? How do I, would I like my home to be in terms of how I interact with my life partner? Or am I going to even have a life partner? Or am I even going to have children? Or if I have children, you know, how am I going to interact with them? How am I going to guide them? You're kind of sorting all of this out and kind of coming into this wisdom of how you're really going to conduct yourself in this world. And the way I describe that in short order is I just say, you know, you kind of sort out your life. Our life's a real mess before we understand the wisdom of these teachings. And then as we gain this wisdom and we train our mind more and more, we sort out our life and we realize that, wow, have we been doing things wrong for such a long time? And then just realizing like, wow, there's such a better way. This is what the Buddha taught, a better way of life. So rather than being bound up with others, like the Buddha was talking about, and thinking that we have to get 10 or 20 things done in a given day, what the Buddha is saying is, yeah, we can just do a few things and we'll be so much more at peace and at ease. And, and that might be challenging for someone who's just starting out on the path or hasn't really looked at this part of their life practice. But once you start sorting these things out and you start realizing that everyone else can be in the rat race and running around around you and you can just be in the midst of it all doing your few tasks a day and be completely content and completely peaceful and everyone else can be running around and you're just smiling because you just know what it was like to be in that kind of life before where this craving and desire was just pushing and pushing and pushing and you were running around at one time too 
But then when you slow the mind down and you slow your activity down and you slow your tasks down, life is so much more fulfilling this way. And you can enjoy each individual moment so much more when you don't have this long list. When we have 10 or 20 things that we're going to do in a given day, we can't even enjoy the one that we're focused on right now because we're thinking three steps ahead or 15 steps ahead. But when you just have a few things that you're doing in each day, you can enjoy each one you know, really thoroughly. So that's another benefit of reducing the overall activity that you're involved in in a given day. Thank you, teacher. Would you say that um, wanting to get to the next thing to the next thing is a, that, that's anxiety. Is that a definition of anxiety? And also the other thing, um, I guess the struggle for some people, me as an example, it might be that it's, you know, the wanting to do the whole laundry list is a conditioned mental object. Me coming from the army, you know, like, uh, you know, army command, we had so many things to do, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that could be a, that's a condition. That's a condition, you know, conditioned mental object and, uh, and the, just the yearning to want to get all those things done. That's a form of anxiety. Is this true? Am I understanding this correctly? You're close, Nick. Let me help you. So the wanting to get things done in this long laundry list of things, that's craving desire attachment. And that's what's going to produce the anxiety. The anxiety is the discontent feeling, and it's the craving desire attachment that's going to produce it. So that wanting to get so many things done, this is the mind just longing and yearning and longing and yearning, thinking that this next shiny object is going to fulfill you. And then you get to that next object and, ah, you know, you get it done or you get frustrated because it's not done the way you want it to be done. And you want to hurry up and run to two, three, four, five, six things. But your mind is over there, so you can't get number one done really well and really thorough. And sometimes we really struggle that way. So focusing on just one thing at a time, when you don't have the craving in the mind to get two, three, four, five, ten things done, you can just focus on that one thing and do it really well. And then you tidy it up, tie a bow on it. You know you've done it really well, all wise decisions, all wholesome decisions. You can move on to number two, and you know nothing from number one is going to come back and bite you because you did it really well with lots of wisdom and wholesome results are only going to be produced from that. And this is how someone like Gautama Buddha 2,500 years ago lived for 45 years, and it was just one wholesome decision after another, one wise decision after another, and it's culminated now 2,500 years later to everything that we see around us with all this Buddhist teachings and meditation so many places. And then to get to what you described is a conditioned mental object, craving, anger, and ignorance. These three poisons or three unwholesome roots, these are conditioned mental objects. So yes, craving, desire, attachment is a conditioned mental object. And it's the longing and yearning, that craving desire, which makes the mind want to get so many things done. And then that's what leads to the anxiety, that when you pull back and diminish and reduce and eliminate craving, desire, attachment, that's where you'll see the mind won't feel stress and there won't be anxiety. And also that's why the body won't feel stress too. But when we go around craving and yearning, carrying around this burden of craving, desire, attachment, or this mental object of craving, desire, attachment. That's why people feel so diminished and so 
depleted at the end of their day because it's just been go, 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 go. And we oftentimes allow other people's mentality of go, 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 go to influence us. And that that's where we get bound up with others, that we see everyone else around us go, 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 go. And we think that that's what we've got to do, too. So we just kind of conform to that. Our mind gets conditioned to do that, like you're talking about in the army. But that can also happen in other places as well. If we work in a business office or a hospital or any number of places, if we're go, 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 and that's what we see around us all the time, We conform to that because as human beings, we tend to conform to our environment around us and that's how we survive. But somebody who's moving to enlightenment, they're not a follower. They're not going to conform because they understand that the whole problem with this whole world is craving anger and ignorance. And if we just conform to what other people are doing, then we're just going to stay in the darkness with everyone else with our mind polluted and craving anger and ignorance. So in order to rise above that, just like that lotus flower rising above the murky pond, you've got to not get bound up with others and not allow this conditioning that you've experienced for so many years to persist. You have to unravel all of that and realize that there's this better way of life. Thank you, sir. Yeah, this this chapter really stood out to me because I was doing number five over the past few weeks, you know, and I, I recognized that. Oh no, that's not that's not discontentedness. No, you know, but I had a yearning to want to get things done. So I realized that over the last few weeks, and and with certain things that you said to me, uh, um, I just started doing number one. You know, I slowed down, and uh, yeah, it's a lot more peaceful. Thank you for your teachings, and I just wanted to share 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 that, and I thought I could help others. Yeah. Thank you for the explanation. Yeah, you're welcome. We have a phrase here in Thailand we use. It's called cha-cha, and cha-cha means slowly, slowly. We also have this uh, saying. It's actually from Chinese language. It's The Thais use it. It's uh, susu. Susu means go forward, go forward. Because oftentimes what we like to do is we like to look backwards. We always like to look behind us and feel like we have to look backwards, but an enlightened mind is always going to be in the present moment and then move to the next step, in the present moment and then move to the next step. So we say susu, like go forward, go forward. But then we also say cha-cha, slowly, slowly, think it through, think it through, right? Well, Miranda has your hand raised. It's good to hear. Yes, sir. On Facebook, Manal asks, how should one work through what is observed as physical or mental exhaustion where the body or mind needs this more? It is noticed that there is attentiveness in awake periods. However, the comfort that is experienced after resting or sleeping feels absolutely necessary. There's also marked drowsiness. Yeah, if you need to rest, get your rest. That's what you need to do. And realize that the mind needs to gradually transition. You're not going to be able to do these things you know, instantly. So if you're noticing that you're really exhausted or depleted at the end of your day, this is because the mind has that burden of craving, desire, attachment. So the more space you make in your life for breathing mindfulness meditation, practicing generosity, learning and practicing these teachings, then you'll be able to slowly diminish the craving your alertness and your attentiveness will go up. And this is where you also can do fewer tasks. And when you're doing fewer tasks, you'll be getting each one done more thoroughly so that then you don't have to go backwards and clean things up. 
So as you're learning these teachings, there's just, you know, learning them and doing them more and more frequently and just making it part of your being, making it first nature in your mind. So oftentimes we see things like this or we have conversations like this and it's like, oh, I want that. I want the few tasks or I really want the alertness and, and, and not being depleted. How do I get that? Well, learning and practicing the whole path as a comprehensive approach. So there's learning the path, there's reflecting, there's practicing, then there's learning some more, reflecting, practicing, learning some more. There's not just like a a switch that you can click and immediately get to no depletion at the end of your day. It's a gradual diminishing of craving that is going to lead to the gradual increase of more energy where you don't feel depleted at the end of your day. Thank you, sir. And doing this for an extended long-term period where the pollution of mind is just gradually diminishing. And then you see these enlightenment factors, those seven factors of enlightenment arising more and more and more in the mind. Thanks, teacher. No more question for now. All right. Let's move to chapter 29. Yes. And the next volunteer is Donnie. Five hindrances that weaken wisdom. Months. There are these five obstructions, hindrances, burdens of the mind, states that weaken wisdom. What five? Number one, sensual desire is an obstruction, a hindrance, a burden of the mind, a state that weakens wisdom. Number two, ill will is an obstruction, a hindrance, a burden of the state, a state that weakens wisdom. Number three, complacency is an obstruction, a hindrance, a burden of the mind, a state that weakens wisdom, restlessness and worry is an obstruction and hindrance, a burden of the mind, a state that weakens wisdom. Doubt is an obstruction, a hindrance, a burden of the mind, a state that weakens wisdom. These are the five obstructions, hindrances, burdens of the mind, state that weakens wisdom. Monks, without having abandoned these five obstructions, hindrances, burdens of the mind, states that weaken wisdom, it is impossible that a monk with his ineffective and fragile wisdom might know his own wholesomeness, the wholesomeness of others, or the wholesomeness of both, or realize a superhuman distinction in wisdom and vision worthy of the noble ones. Suppose a river were flowing down a mountain traveling a long distance with a swift current carrying along much trash. Then on both of his banks, a man would open irrigation channels. In such a case, the current in the middle of the river would be dispersed, spread out and divided so that the river would no longer travel a long distance with a swift swift current carrying along much trash. So too, Without having abandoned these five obstructions, hindrances, burdens of the mind, states that weaken wisdom, it is impossible that a monk with his ineffective and fragile wisdom might know his own wholesomeness, the wholesomeness of others, or the wholesomeness of both, or might realize a superhuman distinction in wisdom and vision worthy of the noble ones. The followings are the reverse aspects of monks who are void of hindrances. These are the monks who penetrate ignorance, unknowing of true reality, true wisdom, 
just as a swift current of a river with irrigation channels close on both of its banks could travel a long distance. All right. Thank you, Donnie. So here the Buddha is talking about the five hindrances to enlightenment. This is something that I teach as part of the group learning program, and that's going to be coming up. And I think uh, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, I think is when I'm going to be teaching that. We're going to be discussing these five hindrances, what they are, and then what the remedies are to each one of these. And these are all mental objects. Since we're talking about mental objects in today's class, sensual desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness and worry and doubt. These are all mental objects along with other mental objects that exist as well. And if any of these are in the mind, what the Buddha is saying is that you're not going to have access to wisdom. The reason why is because the mind is going to be shaken up. The way that you get to wisdom is the mind needs to be calm. There needs to be mindfulness or awareness of mind. There needs to be concentration or singleness of mind. And then you can access wisdom. But as long as there's central desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness and worry or doubt, the mind's going to be shaken up. It's going to be uncalm. Therefore, you can't get to mindfulness or awareness of mind. You can't get to concentration or singleness of mind. Therefore, you can't access wisdom. So the antidote to ensuring that the mind is calm is equanimity. By practicing equanimity, you can retain the mind in this calm mental state including in difficult situations. By keeping the mind relaxed and calm, yet attentive and alert, this is where you have mindfulness, concentration, and then you can access wisdom. If we allow the mind to be shaken up or uncalm in difficult situations, we tend to make decisions that are irrational or actually can make the situation worse. So whenever you start observing that there's a difficult situation happening around you, right away just think equanimity and bring the equanimity in so that you can maintain your calmness and composure, evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations. And then you'll have mindfulness, concentration, and be able to access your wisdom. But more importantly, what you'll need to do is uproot every single one of these, ensure that they don't exist. And these are mostly part of the fetters. If you look at these closely, these are part of the fetters, except for complacency. That one is not part of the fetters, but all these others are essentially part of the fetters. So the Buddha will take certain parts of his teachings and kind of recast them in a different way. And this is his layered effect of the way that he actually teaches. So if you're interested in learning what each one of these are and what their remedies are, I'm going to be teaching that about a week from now. I've also taught this in previous classes. So there's recordings on YouTube and the podcast related to these. So if you're interested in the five hindrances and you'd like to learn that sooner than next week, then you can actually go out and get those recordings and you'll be able to learn this sooner rather than later. Any questions on this chapter? No question at this time, teacher. All right. Chapter 30. Yes. Uh, the next volunteer is Jen. Thank you, Basim. These five hindrances are called obstacles, hindrances, coverings up, envelopings. Vesata, it is just as if this river, Asaravati, were full of water so that a crow could drink out of it and a man should come along wishing to cross over to get to the other side, to get across, and were to lie down on this bank, covering his head with a shawl. What do you think, Vasata? 
Would that man be able to get to the other side? No, Master Teacher Gautama. In the same way, Vasita, in the noble disciple, these five hindrances are called obstacles, hindrances, coverings up, envelopings. Which five? The hindrance of sensual desire, of ill will, of complacency, of restlessness, and worry, of doubt. These five are called obstacles, hindrances, coverings up, envelopings. And these Brahmins learned in the three Vedas are caught up, confined in, obstructed, entangled with these five hindrances. But that such Brahmins learned in the three Vedas who persistently neglect what a Brahmin should do and persistently do what a Brahmin should not do and who are caught up, confined in, obstructed, entangled in these five hindrances should attain after death at the breaking up of the body to union with Brahma, that is not just not possible. Thank you, Jan. So here, the Buddha is again talking about the five hindrances, which we were just talking about previously. And he's saying that in this noble discipline or this natural laws of existence, he's saying that these five hindrances are obstacles. They're obstacles to enlightenment and experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And then starts talking about the Brahmin, because remember the Brahmin were practicing and sharing certain teachings with the public, and then the Buddha comes in with something very different than what the Brahmin were actually sharing with the public. And as the Buddha is sharing his teachings, Brahmin oftentimes come and learn with him, but there's kind of like this bit of a relationship where the Buddha knows that they're not really practicing what leads to enlightenment. And he kind of points this out to his students every once in a while to help them see what the true real teachings are, because the people who are ordaining with him and becoming his students have grown up in households that were essentially having this allegiance to Brahmin, and they were practicing these traditions for such a long period of time in multiple generations that as the Buddha was sharing these new teachings, it was kind of helpful for his students for him to say, you know, here's what the Brahmin are doing, but this isn't going to lead to enlightenment is essentially what he's saying. But ultimately what he says here, which is very unique, is he talks about how these Brahmin who are essentially praying to gods and thinking that they're going to die and then go be with God, the Buddha is saying, as long as you have these five hindrances, it's not possible to have this union with God that the Brahmin are interested in experiencing. So here the Buddha is helping his students realize how obstructive these five hindrances are, that even someone who is practicing another tradition, if they're still having these five hindrances, they're not going to be able to accomplish the results of this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, and they're not going to be able to experience this union with God, which is what they're interested in, in experiencing. And this is another important place to point out how the Buddha did teach about God. During the lifetime of the Buddha, they called Brahma God. So that's why you see God in parentheses there, that the Brahmin were teaching people how to pray and worship the gods. And there was these different gods, and they used this word Brahmin to refer to the priest, and Brahma to refer to this great god of Brahma. But there was also other gods as well. 
Sometimes you'll see in Buddhist communities that people say the Buddha denied the existence of God, but this isn't true because you'll see it throughout his teachings that he references God in different places. Any questions on this chapter? No question, teacher. All right, we'll move on to chapter 31. Yes, and let's go to Miranda. Then the Tathagata guides him further. When Agavesana, the noble disciple, possesses mindfulness and full awareness, then the Tathagata guides him further. Come, monk, resort to a secluded resting place. The forest, the foot of a tree, a mountain, a ravine, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a jungle thicket, an open space, a heap of straw. He resorts to a secluded resting place, the forest, the foot of a tree, a mountain, a ravine, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a jungle thicket, an open space, a heap of straw. On returning from his alms round, gathering food, after his meal, he sits down, folding his legs crosswise, setting his body erect and establishing mindfulness before him. Abandoning craving for the world, he resides with a mind free from craving. He purifies his mind from craving. Abandoning ill will and hatred, he resides with a mind free from ill will, compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. He purifies his mind from ill will and hatred. Abandoning complacency, he resides with a mind free from complacency, perceptive of light, mindful, fully aware, he purifies his mind from complacency. Abandoning restlessness and worry, he resides unagitated with a mind inwardly peaceful. He purifies his mind from restlessness and worry. Abandoning doubt, he resides having gone beyond doubt. Confident about wholesome states, he purifies his mind from doubt. Having thus abandoned these five hindrances, imperfections of the mind that weaken wisdom, he resides reflecting on the body as body, dedicated, fully aware and mindful, having put away craving and grief for the world. He resides reflecting on feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, fully aware and mindful, having put away craving and grief for the world. Then the Tathagata guides him further. Come monk, reside reflecting on the body as a body, but do not think thoughts connected with the body. Reside reflecting on feelings as feelings, but do not think thoughts connected with feelings. Reside reflecting on mind as mind, but do not think thoughts connected with the mind. Reside reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, but do not think thoughts connected with mental objects. With the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in a second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy. Furthermore, the Buddha explained the third jhana, the fourth jhana, the remembering of past lives, the divine eye, third eye, <clears throat> the destruction of the taints, and enlightenment according to the standard Pali reference. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is actually talking about how he guides students and the progression of how he guides students. There's other parts of his teachings, and I think we covered those in volume three, where he actually gives a very clear plan of you know what a student should focus on first and second and third and how he kind of moves students through the progression of his teachings. And he's kind of doing that to a certain extent here as well, where he says, okay, when a student who's very close to me, someone who's learning very closely, a noble disciple, possesses mindfulness and is fully aware, then he guides them further. So he's looking to observe that his student 
has this awareness of mind, has this mindfulness, fully aware of the mind, then he guides them further. And this is someone who's in the first jhana. This is why this teaching eventually leads to the second jhana. Because at this point, the Buddha is observing that this particular student is already in the first jhana. And then now, how do I help them get from the first jhana to the second jhana? Well, now this is what he's explaining here is how to now get to the second jhana. And in order to fully progress through to the second jhana, a person would need to have given up and abandoned all the five hindrances. This abandon of craving is central desire. When we talk about central desire, this is the craving of the mind because the mind craves through the six senses. So sometimes you'll see the Buddha say this as abandoning central desire. Other times it might say abandoning craving. But when you see all five of them here, that's how you know it's the the five hindrances. So he's essentially helping you to see this progression. And then he talks about these four foundations of mindfulness, having awareness of the body as the body is the bodily sensations, being aware of the bodily sensations as they arise and being able to cut them off and let them go there. That will help you to eliminate discontentedness because the discontentedness that is arising, there's going to be these bodily sensations that occur first. And if you can catch it there and cut it off, you've just saved yourself a whole lot of trouble and difficulties because it never becomes feelings in the mind. But if it ever becomes feelings in the mind, you can cut it off there. If you don't cut it off there, it affects the condition of the mind. If you don't cut it off there, then it forms these mental objects that we were talking about, these more deeply seated objects. So a practitioner that's going to ultimately get to enlightenment would need to have mindfulness of these four foundations of mindfulness, bodily sensations, feelings, the condition of the mind in these mental objects and be able to see those very clearly in the mind and then be able to take action to eliminate the discontentedness that's arising in the mind and uproot these mental objects so that you no longer experience this discontentedness coming into the mind because you've purified the mind and completely eliminated the discontentedness from arising. But in order to do that, you have to have mindfulness of these four foundations of mindfulness. And then what else does he talk about here? Let's see. Oh, and then he just basically says, okay, you know, having done these things, then the mind is going to move into the second jhana. And then later he describes the third and fourth jhana as well. Questions on this chapter? No question, teacher. All right, let's go to chapter 32. 32. Okay, so let's go to Nick. Cause and reason for the true teachings to endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana. Master Gotama, what is the cause and reason why the true teachings do not endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana, final enlightenment? And what is the cause and reason why the true teachings endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana, final enlightenment. It is Brahman because of the four foundations of mindfulness are not developed and cultivated that the true teachings do not endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana. And it is because the four foundations of mindfulness are developed and cultivated 
that the true teachings endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana. What for? Here, Brahman, a monk resides reflecting on the body in the body, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. He resides reflecting on feelings and feelings, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. He resides reflecting on mind in mind, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. He resides reflecting on mental objects in mental objects, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. It is because these four foundations of mindfulness are not developed and cultivated that the true teachings do not endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana. And it is because the four foundations of mindfulness are developed and cultivated that the true teachings endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana, final enlightenment. All right. Thank you, Nick. So here the Buddha is asked this question about how his teachings can remain long after his death. An individual can attain enlightenment during their life. And then once somebody attains enlightenment during their life, they experience the rest of that life that's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The mind never experiences discontentedness for the rest of that life. Then when that person who's attained enlightenment during their life dies, we call that final nibbana or final enlightenment. The reason why is because this is where the mind and the body separate from each other. You can eliminate all craving, desire, attachment, and experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy in this life. But the one thing that you can't do while you're still alive is you can't separate the body and the mind from each other. So therefore, as long as you're in this human existence, you're going to still experience some bodily pains. You're not going to have the mental pain associated with the physical pain, but there's still going to be physical pain. And that's there for a reason. It's not going to be as intense. It's not going to be as exacerbated as it is prior to training the mind, but you're still going to experience some minor pains. It's there for a reason. If you stand too close to a fire, you need to know you're too close to a fire. Move. Or if you are doing something that is harmful to the body, the mind needs to know that. So there's going to be some physical pain, very light sensation of physical pain, just to help you understand that you need to take action to get the body into a better position so that it's no longer experiencing this damage from whatever's going on in the environments around you. You're going to experience that even when the mind is enlightened. But the difference is when the mind is unenlightened and experiences physical pain, an untrained mind is going to be grasping for pleasant feelings. And this is going to intensify the pain in the physical body because you're now going to experience this mental pain as well. Because an untrained mind, all it knows is when I feel pain, grasp for pleasant feelings and the mind's going to crave for pleasant feelings. And this actually intensifies the physical pain. But a mind that's well-trained and understands that physical pain is impermanent, 
you can experience physical pain, but you won't experience the mental pain associated with that because you just know that this physical pain is impermanent. And let me just take some corrective action to fix it. And you won't be all bent out of shape or shaken up by this physical pain. So the final nibbana that they're talking about here is once the Buddha attained enlightenment during his life at 35, once he dies at age 80, which we know today, that's his final nibbana. That's when he died. And then from that point, the mind and the body separate and there's no more pain. There's no more physical pain at that point because the mind is separated from the body. And this question is, how do we ensure that the teachings continue long after a Buddha has died? And the Buddha says, you know, it's these four foundations of mindfulness. If these are developed and cultivated, these true teachings will endure for a really long time. And the Buddha actually has other teachings where he gives other exact details of how to ensure the teachings of a Buddha are preserved in the world and last for a really long time. But here he's connecting it to the four foundations of mindfulness because here in this book, we're talking about breathing mindfulness meditation. And breathing mindfulness meditation is how you develop the four foundations of mindfulness. It's in breathing mindfulness meditation that you develop this full awareness of the mind where you become aware of the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind and mental objects. And you're working to gain this full awareness and then be able to use that in daily life through observing discontentedness arising and cutting that off and letting it go. Some other things that I thought I would mention here is here the Buddha is talking about having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. That craving in regard to the world, that's that excitement in the world that we were talking about earlier. This displeasure in the world, this is where you might have at some points in your life or you might now go around and complain about how things are in the world. If you have craving, desire, attachment for things to be a certain way in the world, then the mind is going to complain and have this disgruntled negative look, negative outlook on how things are in the world. Because of the mind wants things to be a certain way in the world, when they're not that way, then the mind's going to experience this displeasure and it might complain about how things are in the world. An enlightened mind, a mind with wisdom, is not going to have craving for things to be a certain way in the world. They're going to know that the things are the way they are in the world because of these natural laws of existence. Everything's happening exactly the way that these natural laws explain that they're going to happen. And an enlightened being with wisdom knows that complaining about how things are in the world isn't going to fix the world. So why complain about it? There's no sense in complaining about it. Instead, what we do on this path to enlightenment is you're learning and practicing the natural laws of existence to understand the world and understand how it functions. When we're in the unenlightened state and when we don't understand these natural laws, we look out at the world and, oh my goodness, everything's so horrible. You know, we might even think things are miserable in the world for some of us because we look out at the world and we just don't understand why the world is the way that it is. But as you learn and practice these natural laws of existence, you understand exactly why everything's going on the way that it is. Your mind's liberated from wanting things to be a certain way because you already know with wisdom that things are happening exactly the way the Buddha taught. 
You see craving, anger, and ignorance everywhere around you. You see impermanence. You see discontentedness. You see people that are holding on to the self. You see people that are practicing wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration. You see all of these things. And then you also see people who are practicing the teachings and life for them is much, 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 much better than the people who are over here practicing these teachings that don't understand the natural laws of existence. So it's important to train the mind to not be complaining all the time and having this displeasure in the world. It's one thing to look at at the world and be like, yeah, there's a lot of suffering and misery here in the world and know why that's occurring versus being disgruntled and angry and frustrated and having this complaining mind and this displeasure of the world. That's very different. And that's going to keep you in the darkness if you function in that way. So an enlightened being can look out at the world and know that things are quite horrible, but they aren't going to sit around and complain about it because they know that that's not going to help anything whatsoever. Questions on this chapter? No question for now, teacher. All right. Just have two short chapters left. Is this a short one? Actually, this is quite a long one. I know the one after this is kind of short. Uh, let me just see what this one looks like here. If it's something great good of mindfulness directed to the body. So this is more about developing the four foundations of mindfulness. Does anybody have any questions on this from their reading rather than reading through this? Mm, not seeing any question for this chapter. Okay, I would like to just be aware of your time and the time of class. I think that we'll just kind of skip over this one. If you guys have any questions, you can put that into the Facebook group or reach out to me privately and I'll help you with that. There's a lot of detail here, so definitely be sure to learn it, but I'll just kind of skip over it because it's, it's quite a long chapter and the last chapter for today's class. Do concentration in the morning, in the middle of the day, and in the evening. Monks, possessing three factors, a shopkeeper is capable of acquiring wealth, not yet acquired, and of increasing wealth already acquired. What three? Here a shopkeeper diligently applies himself to his work in the morning, in the middle of the day, and in the evening. Possessing these three factors, a shopkeeper is capable of acquiring wealth not yet acquired and of increasing wealth already acquired. So too, possessing three factors, a monk is capable of achieving a wholesome state not yet attained and of increasing a wholesome state already attained. What three? Here, a monk diligently applies himself to an object of concentration in the morning, in the middle of the day, and in the evening. Processing these three factors, a monk is capable of achieving a wholesome state not yet attained, and of increasing a wholesome state already attained. All right, thank you, Bossum. So here the Buddha is essentially giving us guidance on when to meditate. Oftentimes people are interested to know, you know, when should I meditate? What frequency should I meditate? Things like that. Well, here's that recommendation directly from the Buddha is morning, midday, and evening is what he recommends. I usually share with people to meditate two or three times a day, 
three times a day is ideal. This is where you'll see the most progress, the most benefit. You'll see the most progress in your practice as discontentedness will diminish more and more readily when you're meditating to that level of frequency. But depending on your life and what you've got going on and how you've prioritized your life, you might only be able to get two a day. You might even only be at one a day for now. But in order to get to enlightenment, you're going to need to get to a minimum of two per day. And the closer you get to three per day, you're going to see the most benefits there. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment with just one session per day. But if that's where you're at, just aim to continue to improve and build up to two or three sessions per day. And this is ideal. This is where you'll see the mind really progressing. And this other thing that we were talking about earlier in our class, where we were talking about having few tasks per day and not having this big, huge laundry list of things that you need to get done in a given day. If you've kind of sorting out your life more and more and more, and you're kind of getting things pretty well managed, you'll find that you'll have more and more time to actually meditate. When you first start, when your life has a lot of things going on and you've got lots of demands, lots of requirements, lots of people around you who are demanding, you might find that once a day is what you're able to get in. And particularly if you're a single mom or a single dad or something like that, you might find that you know once a day is really what you can manage right now. But as you start getting things sorted, maybe you start guiding your children a little bit more closely. You start cultivating wholesome friends. There's not as much drama going on in your life. You've got your work relationships sorted out pretty well. You might find that you start having more time in your day and you can increase your meditation to two or three times per day and do that on a regular, consistent, ongoing basis. But then understand that there might also be periods of time where you know, you know, your wife goes away or your husband goes away and now you are a single dad or a single mom where normally you have more help around the house. Or maybe you have a really busy project at work that's going to take the next month of your time and maybe you need to bring your meditation down a little bit. If you can keep your meditation at two or three times a day, that would be ideal. But understand that your meditation practice is impermanent and you might have to fluctuate it here and there. But just don't get caught in that trap where you just do once a day because if you miss it a day, you're going to go a whole two or three days without meditating. And that's not going to be helpful for you. You're not going to be able to get to enlightenment with that type of situation. So if you build up to two or three times a day and you miss one, then you still got at least one or two in that particular day. And that is what's going to really produce the most benefits for you. Any questions on this? That's all for today, teacher. All right. Well, I'll just end by thanking you all for attending class and appreciate you guys being diligent to learn and practice. And this particular class went a little bit longer because of more chapters that we needed to cover. But thank you guys for participating and reading and asking questions. This is really helpful for your practice. Next week on Saturday, we're going to be in the new book of volume eight. That book is titled The Foremost Householder. This is a collection of teachings specifically for household practitioners. And we're going to go 10 chapters a week like we typically do. So if you'd like to read ahead, you can read chapters one through 10. And that should probably take you about an hour, hour and a half to do that. And you're going to need to do some reflection in there too. I don't suggest that you do that all in one sitting, but instead, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes a day, read like 
one or two chapters a day and that's it because you've got the Buddha's words and you've got the explanations that I share as well. And if you decide you would like to go back and look at the original source, there's a reference in there that you can go back and look at what the Buddha was saying before or after that as well. So you might like to give yourself a bit of time each day to just slowly progress rather than sitting down and taking a real big bite of the teachings because oftentimes those 10 chapters are covering a lot of different topics. So if you tried to take it in in one sitting, you'd have a lot to kind of handle in the mind. Whereas if you just kind of spend maybe 15 minutes or even 20 minutes a day just gradually progressing through the book, this is going to be a lot more helpful and easier to digest. It's like taking a small bite of food. It's easier to chew and digest rather than taking one big, huge bite of food. Tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be in chapter, actually, we're going to be in the frequently asked questions section of the book. We're coming to the very end of the group learning program. We're recovering all the additional content at the end of the book. It's the frequently asked questions. And there's a portion in there after the 11 frequently asked questions that covers how to determine if you're enlightened or not. So we're going to be discussing that as part of our class tomorrow. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. So if you'd like to practice breathing mindfulness meditation together as a group, you can come to that class and we'll be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. So thank you all for joining us for today's class. We'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.